Welcome to Conversations in Complexity. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Gord McGregor, who's been working as a patient advisor for various institutions uh, here in Toronto. Uh, I believe it was Providence in particular and Bridgepoint as well, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So why don't we begin by telling me a bit about yourself and your life history and your life course, what sort of work you did and how you found yourself in the role that you're currently in. When I came to Toronto, I came in about 62 from Nova Scotia, and uh, I worked with Canron in the foundry division uh, down on Eastern Avenue. So I transferred to uh, the structural steel division. They were the ones that topped off the uh, CN Tower. And then you, I guess, uh, as many of us do, uh, retired. And uh, how did you occupy yourself in your retirement? I took a little job with a church, mm -hmm. so I was their custodian, and I worked with them for about uh, eight years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, well, when I turned eighty, time to retire. Time. <laughs> then it was time. Then you then you'd earned the right to totally slow down. Yeah. So, uh, how did you get involved in working as a patient advisor or bringing the patient's voice uh, to the attention of people in healthcare? Well, early on in our marriage, probably after maybe about five, seven years or so, there was my wife was showing signs of illness. I didn't know what it was, but strange things were happening. And at one point, she came home and said, uh, I've got my own place and moved out. So uh, I thought, oh, well, there goes my problems. That's fine. But of course they didn't. I ended up paying for two places and she was getting sicker. I had no idea what it was. Then uh, one day coming home, a lot of hang-ups on my answering machine. And my wife said, well, I called her knowing it would be her. And she said, the lawyer says you have to come and kill me. So uh, I phoned a friend and we went to her apartment. And when we get in and we looked around and, and talking to her, and then I saw where she'd cut her wrist. So I thought, ah, better get her to the hospital. I said, well, you go to the hospital and get them to look at that. It had, it had all dried and mm. it was, seemed to be okay. Anyway, uh, that's when she got diagnosed with schizophrenia, and mm. that was about 85. And it took some time before she got on medication, probably a year and a half before she would get on an injectable. She took it for six months said, I'm fine, I don't need it anymore. The doctor said to her, do you think it helped? She said, it's just nice not to hear the voices. Hmm. So uh, she stopped, and it took me another probably about 12 years before I got her back in and on medication. So that was obviously a very painful, difficult, long experience. It was difficult, you yeah. know, not knowing what was yeah. going on, yeah. Yeah. And how were your interactions with the system? Were they smooth or...? Generally, her first doctor in, in the 85s was really good. Now, with the system, getting her back in, knowing that you had to be a harm to yourself or somebody else before they would take you into hospital, I thought, that's not going to happen. I'll get her there and they won't keep her. And... I went to the Justice of the Peace, first one I went to. He said, I'm not going to give you the form. So that didn't work. I called the cops. 
uh, one time, I called 911 and, and they came. She'd made a mess of the house and they looked around and said, oh, she's help. And I thought, oh, yeah. Anyway, she had pushed the cop when he was coming in the door and he said that was a push. So he charged her and they handcuffed her, put her in the back of the cruiser and took her to Sunnybrook. But they only kept her about a week and said, we don't have any beds and she doesn't meet the criteria. So you have to take her home. I went to the Justice of Peace again, and this man was really good. He said, this is how you fill out the form. Do this, check this, and if it doesn't work, get back here right away. And I'll, you know. So we got to Sunnybrook, same again, cops. This time they were really good, but they had to handcuff her because she didn't get dressed. Mm. She was in her pajamas and house coat. So they, but this time, she said, you hurt me the last time, and he said, don't, don't resist us this time. Please don't. Those cops were really good, and they got her there. And for the second time, a resident sat in front of me and said, uh, she doesn't meet the criteria, we don't have any beds, so uh, we can't keep her. And then he turned to me and he said, but if you tell me you won't take her home, we'll have to keep her. I said, I'm not taking her any place. Hmm. So they kept her, we got a good doctor. He said, I'm gonna keep her longer than the uh, ministry says we should. And he kept her, and, and then when she said, I'm going home, uh, I saw him in the hallway, and he said, no, you have to decide how you're going to look after the medication. So I asked her if she'd go to my doctor. She said yes, and she came home, and then she was on medication for the rest. And so once stabilized and cared for appropriately, uh, she remained well cared for on those medications. Yes. And that was until... 2017. Okay. And uh, she was having trouble moving, getting up. Talked to the psychiatrist and said, I don't think the meds are working so well. And other things. Anyway, I called 911 twice. The second time they came, the paramedics said, this is the second time we're here. If we come a third time, we'll just kidnap you. Anyway, we talked her into going that day. And she went to Sunnybrook and they kind of looked after in D-Wing, I think, and then we transferred her down to the psych ward, and from there she was transferred over to uh, Providence. Okay. And how long did she stay in Providence? About eight months. Eight months. Yeah, and then she passed away. Oh, yeah, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then all this time you were engaged in caregiving and providing support and helping her to maintain her wellness as much as possible? Yes, she was good, you know. She would get meals, and she would plan meals, and she was always better at knowing what was going on in the city than I was. But, yeah, I was there for her. Yeah. So eight months is a long time in an institution, and I'm sure you were there frequently. Every day. Every day. How did you find you were regarded as a caregiver? I mean... At Sunnybrook, when she was on the psych ward, one of the little nurses that I really liked, and she said to me one day, oh, well, thanks for all your help. And I said, I don't do anything. She said, you just don't know. Another time, one of the nurses wanted to give her a shower, and she wouldn't. And the nurse, I, when I went in, Anne wasn't there. And I said, where is she? Oh, uh, they want to give her a shower. So the nurse came out and said, Gord, can you come on in and help us? And if she wouldn't do it for the nurse, she wouldn't do it for me. So... She didn't have a shower that day. But, yeah, they seemed to rely on me. Yeah. 
So it's nice in one context, it was recognized the importance that uh, your presence as a caregiver made for uh, the overall care that your wife received in the, in the hospital. How do you think um, hospitals and institutions can better support caregivers? What sort of things do we need to be doing better? You see, my experiences have generally been positive. But while at Providence, I ran into people there that would be going, a couple of men that were elderly and were going to be leaving, were pretty uptight about going because they didn't know what was going to happen to them. So they have to be given some direction, what's, you know, what's going to happen. Now, a friend of mine just fell and broke her hip, and she was at another uh, rehab. And this lady has been in the healthcare system all her life, and she knows her way around. But moving back home, she, she was given a, a date to leave, but going back home, uh, she thought, well, I need bars in the bathroom and, you know, different things to support her. And they said, oh, your family will have to look after that. And they didn't give her really very much help how to do it. Now, she had a daughter-in-law, which eventually that girl arranged everything for her. But she didn't get much help from the hospital. Uh, so smoothing transition to home would be a really key area where we could devote some of our attention to. I think so, yes. I had another mother and daughter, they were going, and they didn't know anything about the agencies that you might have to pay them, but they're there for home care. I ended up giving them a list. I thought, well, really, somebody in the hospital should be doing it, not me. Yeah, well, yeah I agree with you. So more resources and services could be put in place, but not just having the resources, directing people to them and making sure that they know they're there and understand how to access them. After Ann passed, I sold the house and moved into a retirement. So what motivated you to become an advisor? How, how did you get involved in, in this aspect of your life? Oh, dear. I think I've just always been there. Mm-hmm. And what do you see, what do you think you bring to the table that uh, will help us as healthcare professionals? I used to go to uh, the support group for the uh, families looking after people with schizophrenia. And at one point, I used to talk to high school kids at the, at the Clark. They had a program called Beyond the Cuckoo's Nest, and mm-hmm. they'd bus high school kids in. So uh, I'd go and talk to them. And that's a really important role. What sort of things would you tell the high school students? Just about what was going on between Anne and me. Mm-hmm. She knew I was going to the uh, support group. She didn't know I was talking to high school kids. And at one time she said to me, you're going down to that group and telling stories about me. And And, and some of the stories were they about what it means to live with somebody who has a significant mental illness? Yes. Yes. And I think nurses like my story because being married, I stayed with her. Yes. So I think they like that message to get to the kids. Yes. Now, one high school teacher said, this is the second time I've heard you. Why don't you just kick her out? And after it was over, about three young girls came up. What would they be? Maybe 16, 17, 18, you know, kids. 
saying, we can't believe our teacher said that to you. I thought, you get it, and she doesn't. Yes, absolutely. So one of the key worries about people living with significant mental illness is this issue around stigma, and that people will be afraid to engage with them. And I think the story that you brought to the high school students is that uh, you can live in a loving relationship and have a marriage for a long time with somebody who has a uh, significant mental illness. I yeah. think that's a very important thing to communicate to people. And what would you say would be the key messages that you would like to bring to organizations and institutions now in terms of how we care for and manage people in institutions? Well, I've always thought, you know, you have to have patience. And when somebody is ill, you have to be persistent. Mm -hmm. Any particular tips for managing doctors or nurses? or? Well, I've always been not aggressive. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll talk to them. Yeah. But I'm not saying, well, you should be doing this or something. I always think, well, hopefully they know what they're doing. And I try to uh, give my side probably and, and communicate with them. So one of the key things is, uh, I guess, being persistent but supportive at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we're coming close to the end of our conversation. Is there anything else you'd like the people out there to know about your role and your experience that would help us going forward? I just wonder about the health system now. What's going to happen? People that are caregivers to somebody might need long-term care. How are they going to navigate the system if we don't have a LIN to put the application into a long-term care place? Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't even know how to do that, you know. Now, when Anne was at Providence, I was saying, well, I'd like to talk to the LIN. Well, you can't do that until she's going to be discharged. They don't get involved until it's time to leave. But there's things you want to know. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, okay, she's going to be discharged. Then you start to get to talk to them. But you'd like to know before that. Yeah, my experience has been there are some things that patients and families need to know well in advance of the discharge date because it's going to take a lot of organization in the lives of people and mobilization of resources to have that in place. And oftentimes the decision to discharge will come somewhat as a surprise to patients and their caregivers. Well, when Anne went in, she went in high for rehab so that would get her moving again. And because of small strokes, that wasn't going to happen. She was getting sicker. So I learned at Providence at one point, they had something like in the 40s, something like 43 people in ALC beds. And, of course, that clogs up the system. And one of the social workers was very aggressive in saying, well, you have to get her. Uh, you're going to have to get her to a retirement home or something. That's a retirement home. That's not going to work. They, they won't have the people to look after her. Mm -hmm. And while this was going on, the people at Providence were very good. The uh, occupational and physio people, they were going to come to the house to see what the house was like whether she'd be able to live there or not. I was considering getting a chairlift, mm -hmm. but it was 
becoming obvious that she wasn't going to be able to, you know, if it got her upstairs, you know, that that was a small part. How, how was it going to look after her? Right. So, so this notion you said ALC, which means alternate level of care. Did you know what that was before you were told about it? No. No. And even at that point, I I still thought that it meant that if you were in that bed, that you were going to go to a long-term care. That's not necessarily true. You still might be going home. You know, you don't have to be going to a long-term care facility. Right. So this was a strange new world, I guess, to enter into? Yeah, I knew a bit about it. Mm -hmm. I had a good friend that I had a list of long-term care places, and she would make the appointment, and we'd go and, and check them out. And they certainly are not all the same. You'd be encouraged to name maybe three to five or something. Mm -hmm. But it was important to pick one that was probably convenient for you to get to. And also, it was important to find out what kind of care they have because they don't all have the same level of care. Some would have more a higher ratio of nurses or uh, PSWs to patients than others do. And you'd want to get one that had a high ratio of caregivers. And were you aided? Did somebody help you figure out which ones were the appropriate ones? Or did you have to do that work yourself? No. Through the church, I had people tell me about some of the good ones. And I said I was going to go and see one particular one. And the lady at the church said, don't even bother. I thought, no, I'm going to go. And uh, I thought, no, I, I would not want Anne to be in that place. So it strikes me you had to do a lot of research and roll up your sleeves and dig under the surface to find out something that was actually going to be appropriate for your wife. Yes, but I had a lot of help from Providence. Yes, okay, so they were able to give you some assistance in that. Yes. Yeah, well, that's good. Did you ever, were you ever made to feel once this notion of ALC was raised that somehow you shouldn't be there? Uh, was there, did you feel any pressure being applied to, you know, think about moving faster? I think that's one of the concerns I've heard from people is that, well, once your alternative level of care, the, the, the not so pleasant term used is bed blocker, right? And uh, but it's not as if as you know, just as you've explaining, it's not as if everybody can just move to a place that has all of the facilities and services that are required for somebody to be cared for in the manner that they ought to be entitled to. Yeah, I didn't feel pressure. Is that what you mean? Yeah. No. The only thing is that it seems that some of the care that you went in for the therapy of getting people up and walking and moving doesn't seem to exist once they're transferred to the ALC bed. Right. And that can have an unfortunate impact on people's health and well-being if they're not getting up and walked and cared for in the manner that they'd had previously. And the other thing, while, while she was there, she was in a room with three other women. At one point, they had a PSW with them in the room for one person, but that PSW would usually look after everybody in the room. Well, wow. then it got to the point that they said, well, we don't need a PSW. And when that happened, she got less care, and she developed 
a bed sore. Now, the one that was looking after her before that would never leave her unless all the women in that room were cleaned up and, and looked after before she would leave her shift. The nurses were too busy. To, they couldn't do everything. Right. So I think we also need more PSWs. Well, it sounds like you were very fortunate to have an extraordinary PSW who didn't say, well, my job is only to care for this person, but to see others with needs and to reach out and offer assistance. That's really highly commendable on their part. Yes. Yeah. So it strikes me that you have uh, a lot of experience and wisdom that you're going to be communicating to uh, Dr. Kaluski's panel. And I think it's going to enrich their work, and I think it's going to lead to some very thoughtful and meaningful and important changes in how we think about the whole ALC problem. And I'm incredibly grateful to you for taking some time out to uh, come and talk to us. This has been uh, most uh, insightful and illuminating. Thank you. That was great.